from Luke chapter 9, continuing our study in the gospel according to Luke. Pay close attention. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Father, I pray that as we enter the study and the hearing and the preaching of your word today, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might understand and receive the, the words that you have communicated to us through the centuries. Help us to, uh, to follow and, and, and grow and mature as a result of this interaction with your word. Uh, deliver us from all distraction. Deliver me from all error. Uh, help us to hear your voice today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, training someone to do something that you have mastered, training someone in a skill that you have mastered requires an incredible amount of patience, and it requires forgiveness and it requires gentleness. In fact, it may be one of the most difficult aspects of parenting because it's often much easier to let the kids go off and do nothing or, or let them go mess around than to say, come here with me, take every step that I take as we make this beautiful or we fix this or we make this or we, or we do some work over here. Come with me. And as we clean this thing, you're going to learn how to do this. That's so difficult because when you're training someone, especially a little person without <coughs> dexterity or the same dexterity that you have, the task is bound to take twice as long. There are going to be mistakes made along the way that you wouldn't have made, but they make the mistakes. And now not only do you have to do the job, but you have to fix the job and you have to hold back and you have to resist the urge to henpeck and nitpick the whole way through. It can be pretty tedious watching someone else do something poorly that you could have done really well and finished 30 minutes ago. It's, it's, it's difficult to do that. Uh, but we don't have an option. We must submit ourselves in this way to serve others, not only our children, but to serve others this way in order to train them in what you know how to do well. Everyone has to learn from someone else, just as you had to learn uh, from someone else. And, and just like you had someone who was patient with you, so then you must be long-suffering and good-natured and willing to teach, willing to take twice as long and fix the mistakes. Uh, in, order to, uh, in order to train and do the job and be the teacher that you are called to be. That's exactly what Jesus is doing over these sections of Luke's gospel that we've been studying. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus do some really amazing things. But he's not just doing them uh, 
just for entertainment or just to, uh, just to have something to do. He's doing these things before a specific audience, the apostles, who thus far in Luke's gospel have not had a big role to play so far. Back in chapter 6, he set them apart. He called them by name. But they don't move forward in the narrative until the beginning of chapter 8. And, and that's where we read, he tells them the parable of the soils. He sets the expectation for what kind of faith he requires of them. He requires of them a hearing faith that takes the word he has spoken, internalize it, cultivate it, and bear fruit out of that. So he doesn't want them to have a flighty faith, a distracted faith, a vacuous faith, uh, but a genuine fruit-bearing faith. And it's at this point that Jesus calls these men to come, take every step that he takes, share in his life and his work. So he takes them on a boat across the Sea of Galilee, where the big storm uh, uh, whips up, and they're all terrified. And then he calms the storm with his voice. Then he enters Gentile territory and he, he encounters this man who is overrun with evil spirits. And these men watch as he casts the demons out and heals and delivers this man of this, of this terrible uh, uh, influence of demons. And then he returns to Jewish territory. He heals that ceremonially unclean woman who had the issue of blood. He raises a little girl from the dead. He takes just three of his closest companions into the room with him when he does that. And he, he brings this little girl back to life. And so as he's doing these things, he's doing them with these men. And all of these have been deliberate instructional actions showing his disciples who he is, demonstrating his dominion over all of creation, seen and unseen, that he even has the power over death. They've seen this firsthand. So what he says is here, come walk with me and see that I am God over the seas and see that I am God over the skies and I'm God over disease and demons and even death must obey my voice. So the question of the parable of the soils hangs over this uh, series of events. And the question is, are these disciples going to receive the, the good seed of the gospel? And are they going to bear fruit with patience? Or are they going to wither under the hot sun of persecution and rejection? Well, we're about to find out. We get to see because now he intends to turn over the same power and authority to them. Because he's not going to be with them forever. He knows where all of this is headed. In fact, it's in chapter 9 in Luke's gospel where Jesus starts talking about the inevitable end, the inevitable conclusion to his ministry. He is headed for suffering. So if the kingdom is going to keep on advancing after he ascends to the Father, then he's going to have to leave the kingdom in capable, well-trained hands. Now, all of this sheds some important light on Jesus' ministry. We could lament that his time was so short. He spent about 33 and a half years with us, if we're interpreting that correctly, and I believe, I believe we are. It was about 33 and a half years, and only three and a half years of his life was in public ministry. How much more could he have taught us? How much more could he have done if he had had a 50-year ministry or a 60-year ministry? 
But you see, that wasn't his intention. That wasn't his purpose. He came to call out a small group of men, give them a crash course in the kingdom of heaven, and then to live a life of obedience, submit the perfect sacrifice, defeat Satan in the grave, and then go to reign at his father's right hand. That's what he came to do. He did not come to hang out for 40 or 50 years and, and teach, be the, you know, kind of the guru that everybody would come ask questions of. That was not his plan. He, he, he quickly and immediately and, and breathlessly turns over uh, the, the kingdom to these men. That's why in the gospels, there's always this rush. Everybody's moving so quickly. There's always this hurried atmosphere because we don't have time to settle in. If it's going to be done, it's got to be done right now. Ordinary life and ordinary things and ordinary customs are set aside for a time. So even before this chapter is through, Jesus is going to say rude things to that we might think, man, you shouldn't have said that. A man says, I want to come follow you, Jesus, but I've got to first go bury my, bury my father, right? Is that what he says? He says, my father. And what does Jesus say? He says, let the dead bury their dead. And another man says, well, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I've got to first go home and give mama a kiss and tell her I'm leaving. He says, no, there's no time for that. You don't have time. If you're going to come with me, you have to come now because Jesus' window is so short. So everything he does is with the deliberate purpose of instructing his people for a time when he is going to go away. How many times throughout the Gospels does he say, I've done this so that you can do this? Over and over and over we read this. I have loved you, you love one another. You have seen me work, you will do my work. He says, I live, you will live. I was hated, you will be hated. I was persecuted, you will be persecuted. The spirit testifies, you will testify. I don't belong to the world, you don't belong to the world. I washed your feet, you wash each other's feet. And we could come up with many other examples, but he says, I do this, now you do that. I do this, now you do that. And now, so far in Luke's gospel, he's shown these men some things, and it's time to send them out. It's time to take the training wheels off and let them go in his power and in his authority to do what he did. Now, we just read that a minute ago, but I want to read that again, this again with that in mind, um, these first few verses of chapter 9. So he called his 12 disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, all these things that he's telling them to do and all these things he's given them authority to do are things he's done in front of them. These are all things they have seen him do. And so he calls them together, he empowers them, and he sends them out. Just as healing and deliverance and restoration came through Jesus, now all of these things are going to come through his disciples. They are his ambassadors. They are his representatives to the world. But because they're in such a hurry, and because this is a short-term mission, he says, leave right now. Leave right away. Don't pack a bag. Don't go to the ATM. Don't pack uh, food. Don't take a change of clothes. He says, don't take money. It's, you know, whatever the uh, equivalent of an ATM was. Don't, don't go there. Don't get uh, money. Take whatever you have right now and get out of town. 
Wouldn't it be fun to take a vacation like that some, sometime? Just say, okay, everybody, stop. Whatever you're doing right now, we're, we're leaving. We're going to the beach. We're going to the mountains. Just take what you got right now. That's it. That's what we're, especially when the children are little, these little bitty babies. You've got to take these huge, you've got to take the stroller, and you've got to take the pack and play, and you've got to take the 34-count diaper bag, and you've got to, and, and this little person has all of these big things. And sometimes it's nice just, hey, we're leaving. We're getting out of town right now. And that's what he does. Uh, that's what he commands. Don't even make hotel reservations. How does he say this? He says in verse 3, he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Don't even take a change of clothes. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. So as they go on this journey, they're going to be forced to rely on the people that they minister to, to provide for their needs. When they get to a town to preach and to heal, Jesus says, take the first invitation you get. Take the first offer of hospitality you receive and stay in that house until you move to the next town. Now, why does he command that? Why, why is he so specific about that? Because I can imagine getting into town and the first person that comes up to you says, hey, that's pretty cool. That's really nice. Hey, you stay over at my house. And it's a little pile of hay in the corner. You say, well, this is really nice. You know, I'm glad. I'm thankful for this. At least I'm not sleeping in the street. But the next day you're out preaching and you're healing and this rich guy comes along and says, hey, buddy, you need a place to stay tonight? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really do need a place to stay tonight. And he's got this nice lavish room with servants and, and a whole big fancy setup for you. Well, uh, Jesus says, don't do that. Don't take that, other, don't take that other invitation. When you go to a town, stay in the first house that offers you hospitality and remain there until you go on to the next town because it would look as if the disciples are just concerned about sleeping in nice beds and eating fancy meals, if, as if they're trading all the miraculous favors for luxurious accommodations. So Jesus says, don't do that. When you get to a town, somebody invites you in, stay at their house for a short time, and then go on to the next city. And then he gives them one more instruction before they go. That's in verse 5. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. There's a chance when you go to a town, they're not going to listen to you. In fact, they're going to reject you. They may, try to, they may try to throw you off a cliff the way they did me, Jesus said. It's happened so far to Jesus. And so Jesus says, if they reject you, I want you to treat that town the way that the Pharisees treat Gentile towns. See, when Pharisees walked through Gentile lands, they made this big dramatic display of shaking off their clothes, this, this big self-purification display, and they beat their sandals together so that they don't take unclean, impure Gentile soil back into Jewish territory with them. They don't defile the Holy Land with Gentile sand. Now, the cities where Jesus is sending his men, these are all Jewish cities, but if they don't receive the disciples, if they're going to ignore the gospel, Jesus says, you treat them the way Jews treat a Gentile city. You treat them like they're outside the kingdom of God because they are. You know, this, this is the new kingdom and this is how this is going to work. Uh, and so make this same display. Show them where they, where they stand. They think they're on the inside, but they're really on the outside. So in verse 6, they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now we're going to catch up to them in just a few verses, but Luke gives us a little paragraph 
that shows us what's been happening up at Herod's palace and with John the Baptist. Just a few verses. Verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. The last time we heard from John the Baptist, remember he was in prison, and he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to see whether or not Jesus was the one who was promised or whether he was to wait for another. That was the last we heard of John the Baptist. And now we find out from Luke, in the meantime, Herod has beheaded John. Mark gives us more of the story. In the Gospel of Mark, we get all the maneuverings of Herodias and her daughter and the the promise uh, that they forced Herod into making to get John killed. Here, we don't have those details. We simply have this sour note, this ugly, awful reminder of how the kingdoms of wicked men behave. Right in the middle of all these glorious things that the Lord Jesus is doing, we have this ugly reminder of Herod and his behavior. And from this, we we find out that, that Herod has taken notice of Jesus here. He's taken notice of his disciples and their activity, but Herod doesn't know where they came from, who they are, what they're doing. Herod hears rumors that this is the work of the prophet Elijah. And other people are saying, well, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And Herod says, that's just, that doesn't work. That doesn't sound right. I beheaded John. But he still doesn't know what to make of Jesus or the, story, the stories he's been hearing. So Herod says, I want to meet him. I want to see him and figure out what is going on and figure out what I need to do with him. Now, of course, Herod doesn't get to meet Jesus until after Jesus' arrest. And I think it's important to flip over and read Luke 23, uh, verse 8, just to, just to see it in context. Here in, in chapter 9, Herod says, uh, I really want to see him. It's not until chapter 23, uh, listen to this uh, from verse 8, chapter 23. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him. Well, when did he start wanting to see him? It's back here in chapter 9. And he doesn't get his wish until chapter 23. He desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed in his gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. So, so when Herod finally gets his wish... He is so happy to see Jesus. He says, oh, wow, I finally get to meet you. Can you do a trick? Can you, know, can you, can you do something really neat? Can you do a miracle for me? That's what I want to see. I've heard you do these things. I, I, just, I just love to see it. Herod is like this bored, spoiled child who is mildly amused. He's entertained by these crazy prophets like John, you know, with their expectations and their rules and their claims about what God requires. And what does it mean I can't have my brother's wife. You know, what planet do you live on? I'm, I'm Herod. I do what I want. And if I want my brother's wife, I get my brother's wife. So he's just mildly amused at this, at this odd, you know, this odd little group of prophets. He's heard that Jesus can do miracles and he'd really like to see one if he could, but this is all just a big laugh. 
until they don't do what he wants them to do, and then he beats them and has them killed. So right here in the middle of, again, all these wonderful things, we've got this really ugly note about what the powers in command are all about. It's a dark cloud over these events. But how did Jesus and his disciples respond? Let's read the next little section. We'll camp out there. Verse 10. The disciples, when they returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is a little town on the Sea of Galilee. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who had need of healing. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Now, uh, about this time, the apostles returned from their short trips. Jesus listens to all the stories about all their adventures that they had had and all the cities he sent them to. And so Jesus, at this point, pulls back with his men to a deserted place, away from the crowds, away from the demands of the crowds for a short rest. But the multitudes follow them there. They can't get away from the people or their needs. So Jesus spends the whole day healing those who needed to be healed. He preaches about the kingdom of God to them. And even though his body and his mind need rest, he, he's moved with compassion and he spends time with these people. He gives and he gives and he gives of himself. When it starts to get late in the evening, it's about supper time. The disciples say, Jesus, you know, it has been, we're, we're all beat. I mean, you can hear the, you can, you can hear the exhaustion in what they say. Let's, let's send these people to the towns so they can go to bed and they go get something to eat and get them out of here. Just make everybody go home. It's time, uh, and, and we're exhausted. But Jesus makes a bold command. He says to his disciples, he says, no, you give them something to eat. Don't send them away. You feed them. Now, uh, they're a little bit incredulous. Now, what, how are we supposed to feed these people? There's about 5,000 people here. We have five loaves of bread, and we have two fish. Do you want us to go buy food for all these people? You want us to throw an impromptu sit-down meal for 5,000-plus people? It's just men, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Do you know what that would cost? How do you even logistically make that happen? I mean, at six ounces of protein per man times 5,000 people, that's like a ton of food. I did the math this morning. Trust me, it's about a ton of food. But Jesus takes this opportunity once again. He teaches them again. He's saying, no, come walk, take every step that I take. Watch how I do this. He demonstrates his provision and his power for this 12-man classroom. He says, here's what I want you to do. Go have them sit down in groups of 50. Organize them. They're a multitude. They're a crowd. They're, they're not organized. You go organize them. 
You turn them into units. You turn them into an army. Sit them down in ranks. And the apostles do that. And then miraculously, Jesus takes a little bit of food that would fit in one plastic grocery bag, and he feeds the 5,000 men plus women and children. And Luke tells us they were filled. It wasn't that they just had a little, a little snack. Once again, Jesus does more than barely scrape something together to meet the need. He overwhelms the need with his abundance. I've often wondered, how in the, what are the mechanics of this miracle? How, how did it work? How did it look? Do they, they have a sack and they reach in there and they hand a, a loaf to somebody? And they think, well, that's it. And they reach in and, well, there's another loaf there. And then, you know, well, that's, I guess that's the last one. They reach in, there's another there. How do they, they, they break the bread and every time they break, they go back and they see, well, there's another piece to break off. And I don't know how the mechanics of it worked. It, it, it must have been something quite amazing, quite incredible, but... Uh, the, the gospel doesn't focus on those details, nor uh, do we have many details about how Jesus worried about the purity and the cleanliness uh, expectations of the Pharisees. This entire massive group is invited to the feast, and the way that Jesus and the apostles go about this flies right in the face of the Pharisaical practice of using meals as boundary markers between them and the Gentiles and the unclean. So for the Pharisees, you don't eat with Gentiles. You simply, not because God required it, by the way. It's because they just said, we don't eat with unclean people. You're not supposed to be eating unclean food. So that must therefore mean you don't eat with unclean people. They made that leap of ill logic to, to say we don't eat with Gentiles. Well, uh, Jesus doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't push this or force this or, or mention this. Uh, here we don't see Jesus worrying himself or the apostles with any of their concerns. There are thousands of people here. Are they all clean? Are they unclean? Are they all faithful to the law? Are some of them not faithful to the law? We don't know, but they all eat together. More than that, is the food clean? Has it been properly prepared? Have tithes paid, uh, been paid on it? Where is the water for washing beforehand? All of these things are of the utmost concern for the Pharisees. When you start talking about eating, these are the things that come to their minds, all of these rules. But if these things were important to Jesus, we would have read about it, and we don't. It's all absent. So this meal isn't about preserving the social boundaries of first century Jewish religious establishment types. In fact, it's about stating the opposite. The blessing of Jesus toward humanity is without all those limits. What details we do have are these. He takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them to eat. Well, that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? He takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to them. And this is a a foreshadowing, of course, of the Lord's Supper. When it comes time for him later on to institute the new covenant feast, you see already the role that eating and drinking has played so far in his ministry. It seems that every time we open the book of Luke, we, uh, we, we see them working through the day, and then in the night there's a, there's a feast. Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law, and then they ate. He raises the little girl from the dead, and what does he say? Give her something to eat. He called Levi to be his apostle, and then they go have a big supper. The work of the ministry in Luke is intertwined with eating around a table. 
Well, the point is, is that they, throughout Luke's gospel, there, there's all this work and labor throughout the day, and they always end up at the table at night with Jesus at the head. That's where we always end up at the end of our work week. We, we labor throughout the week, and then we come gather together at the table with Jesus at the head. When they're all full, the apostles pick up 12 baskets full of leftovers. Why 12? Well, there could be a symbolic reason for that, meaning that there's not enough food, uh, not only enough food for the people here that day, but enough food for all of Israel. 12 reminds us all of Israel needs to be fed, and there's enough food for all of them. We also have 12 men who have baskets of provision for them. These men have the bread of life. They have the living bread to carry with them. But there's also a practical aspect to this. Why did they pick up these leftovers? It's because there may not be another miracle tomorrow. Uh, They may be eating those leftovers for a while because we don't live by miracles. We don't plan on miracles. If they happen, we're thankful. But in the meantime, we pick up the bread we have and we save it for when we might need it tomorrow uh, with the ordinary ways that God provides. There's a reason also why these, these accounts are put together like this. We have a reminder of Herod's execution of John the Baptist, and right after that, we have the feeding of the 5,000. These things are put together so that we're to draw a contrast between the two. It reminds me of Micah's prophecy. Micah, uh, in chapter 3, it sounds like he's speaking directly to Herod. Listen, listen to the prophet Micah. He says, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, And you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, flesh in the cauldron. That's exactly how John has treated, uh, John has been treated by Herod. Herod serves John the Baptist's head on a platter. The people are hungry. The people are scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And Herod serves the head of John, just as Micah the prophet says that rulers treat the, 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 the people. This is exactly what the prophet said uh, would happen. So it goes on in chapter 4. Micah says, in that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame." I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted, and I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast I will make a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. And to you, tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the daughter, uh, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So, so there's a contrast here between what Herod does to the prophet John and what Jesus does for the hungry people. Herod serves the prophet and his head on a plate. Jesus feeds the people. Jesus feeds the scattered sheep of Israel. It's all in Micah. It's, this contrast is there. Um, this is, uh, this is, he he uh, told them, Uh, In Mark's gospel, we find out Jesus told them to sit down on the green grass. Where are they? They're near Bethsaida, which is beside the still waters of Galilee, the waters that he calmed with his voice. This is is the Psalm 23 shepherd that we sang about this morning. Jesus is, is sitting them on the grass beside the still waters. 
He's preparing a table before them in the presence of their enemies. Herod is watching what they're doing, and yet they can relax and feast. Furthermore, he's preparing a table for them in the wilderness. He tells them, sit down in ranks. They're like the people of the Exodus, eating manna in the wilderness. Jesus is the new Moses. They're the new Israel. This is a new exodus. This is a new creation, a new people, a new beginning. Herod and the demonic forces have done their worst, but they have uh, only accomplished this. They've only shown how wicked and cruel and twisted and humorless they are. How does Jesus combat a tyrant who kills the prophets? He has a picnic. That's what he does. That's how he responds to Herod and his wickedness and his tyranny. I want to zero in on what Jesus said to the men, though. Spend our last couple of minutes here. When the, men, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, we need to send everybody away, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Now, when Jesus commanded them to do that, he knew that they didn't have enough food for all those people. And he knew that they didn't have the means to get the food. Jesus commanded his disciples to do something that they did not have the means or the resources to do. He commanded them to do something that was impossible for them to do. You may have heard it said that God will never command us to do something that we can't do. But he did it right there. You may have heard it said that God never gives us more than we can handle. But he did right there. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, I think what we think of when we say that, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what uh, you are able, but with the temptation will also uh, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So Paul says, God is never going to uh, allow a temptation into your life that you're not able to flee from. In fact, we can always um, flee from uh, evil and we can also... Um, resists Satan and he will flee from us. That's, he's talking about temptation there. We're not talking about temptation now. In fact, the Lord Jesus here is deliberately commanding his disciples to do something that's beyond their ability and is beyond their resources. It is beyond their ability to even figure out how this is going to happen. They have no idea on that day that what would happen is Jesus would take a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish and feed 5,000 people. When they woke up that morning, they said, here's a problem. Here's a little riddle for you. You've got 5,000 people to feed. You've got this. How's it going to happen? They have no way of answering that question. There is nothing in them that would be able to answer how that's going to work out. Jesus commands them to do this. Right on the heels, though, of sending them out without a safety net. At the beginning of the chapter, he says, go right now, take what you have, don't make any plans, go through all the cities healing and preaching, and I'll take care of you along the way. They come back to him telling him all the exciting stories of what happened, but right away, the same day, there's another opportunity, another need that cannot be met with their resources. But rather than remembering what's been happening to them over the last few days, they think, well, the best thing to do is just send them away. There's obviously not anything we can do. Well, we could laugh at their simplicity. We could laugh at their, their ignorance if we didn't behave the same way. In the face 
of the immense blessings and provisions that we have in the face of the boundless blessings that we have been given, we're always using our lack of resources and our lack of time as excuses for why this thing or that thing isn't getting done. As if God is satisfied with our excuses. As if God is limited by our lack. The Lord God of heaven and earth and creator of all things is not limited by what you don't have. The fact that you don't have everything you need to do the work he's given you to do is not a defect. It's a feature. You're not supposed to have all that you need to do what he has told you to do. And so you say you don't have enough time. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough experience. You don't have the courage. Of course you don't. You're not supposed to. That's how it's supposed to work. He sent them out without any provisions. He commanded them to go on a mission that they were woefully unprepared to go on. But obedience, what does obedience mean? It means get on the road, head that way, and see what God has for you down that road. When he commanded them to feed the 5,000, it was their duty to obey. Whether or not they knew where that food was coming from. Go feed the 5,000. But Okay, I'm, I'm doing it in faith. I'm going to do it. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know where the food's coming from. But that's what faithfulness meant. It meant doing what was right, having the courage to follow what God had told them to do through his son, Jesus Christ, irrespective of whether they had the means, the ability, the talent, the resources to do it. No matter what God has required of us, because we are imperfect, because we are limited creatures, we will always lack the means to do it perfectly, completely on our own. And yet he still requires it because he is faithful to make up the shortfall. He is always faithful to make up the shortfall between our lack and what he wants seen uh, and, and accomplished. Against this, our excuses are nothing more than a lack of faith. If I, if I talk to you long enough, we'll, we'll, and, and many of you, I've, I've heard these very things, and I've asked this question of you often. If, if money were no object, if time and resources were no object, what, what would you like to see done for the kingdom of God? What, what do you feel like your calling, your, what is your heart's desire for the church, for, for the kingdom of God? And many of you have some really incredible amazing ideas. That thing that you want to do, yes, you're right. We don't have the money. We don't have, we, we're not fully equipped for it. You are not prepared. Okay, so what? When, when do we get started? When, when do we do it? That is the kind of faith that God required of his disciples twice in this chapter. And I have to believe it's the same kind of faith he requires of us today. Let us take courage and take these faithful risks to step out and do what he requires. Whether or not we got the money, whether or not we got the time, whether or not we got the resources to accomplish it. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand what obedience in this way means. Father, help us to hear and receive uh, this instruction and this example uh, that, that you have set, that your son set before his men. And may we... Uh, likewise, be courageous and faithful. 
Uh, Father, we ask you to shape us, conform us to the image of your Son. And we pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.